0: Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and I don't know if kids know that grisly little ditty anymore, but we sure all knew it when we were kids. It stems from a notorious double murder which took place in Fall River, Massachusetts in 1892, in which the parents of Lizzie and Emma Borden were brutally murdered with an axe, actually probably more likely a hatchet, This episode deals with the aftermath of that crime and the subsequent trial, and it offers a possible solution. So why don't we begin by looking at the history of that crime. Now, Abby Borden was not actually Lizzie's mother. She was her stepmother. Lizzie's mother died in 1863 when Lizzie was three years old. As a result of that, and the feeling that Lizzie had that Abby had married her father for his money, Lizzie never called Abby mother only Mrs. Borden. This is from Wikipedia. Bridget Sullivan, the Borden's 25-year-old live-in maid, whom they called Maggie, testified that Lizzie and Emma rarely ate meals with their parents. In May 1892, Andrew killed multiple pigeons in his barn with a hatchet, believing they were attracting local children to hunt them. Lizzie had recently built a roost for the pigeons, and it has been commonly recounted that she was upset over his killing of them. A family argument in July 1892 prompted both sisters to take extended vacations in New Bedford. After returning to Fall River a week before the murders, Lizzie chose to stay in a local rooming house for four days before returning to the family residence. Tension had been growing within the family in the months before the murders, especially over Andrew's gifts of real estate to various branches of Abby's family. After their stepmother's sister received a house, The sisters had demanded and received a rental property, the home they had lived in until their mother died, which they purchased from their father for $1. A few weeks before the murders, they sold the property back to their father for $5,000. The night before the murders, John Vinicum Morse, the father of Lizzie's and Emma's deceased mother, that's Uncle Morse, as he's referred to in the episode, visited and was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew. Some writers have speculated that their conversation, particularly about property transfer, may have aggravated an already tense situation. For several days before the murders, the entire household had been violently ill. A family friend later speculated that mutton left on the stove for use in meals over several days was the cause. But Abby had feared poisoning, as Andrew had not been a popular man. Although cleaning of the guest room was one of Lizzie's and Emma's regular chores, Abby went upstairs to it sometime between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. to make the bed. According to the forensic investigation, Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack. She was first struck on the side of the head with a hatchet which cut her just above the ear, causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor, creating contusions on her nose and forehead. Her killer then struck her multiple times delivering 17 more direct hits to the back of her head. When Andrew returned at around 10.30 a.m., his key failed to open the door, so he knocked for attention. Bridget Sullivan went to unlock the door, finding it jammed. She would later testify that she heard Lizzie laughing immediately after this. She did not see Lizzie, but stated that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairs. This was considered significant as Abby was already dead by this time and her body would have been visible to anyone on the home's second floor. Lizzie later denied being upstairs and testified that her father had asked her where Abby was and she had replied that a messenger had delivered Abby a summons to visit a sick friend. She then informed Bridget of a department store sale and permitted her to go, but Bridget felt unwell and went to take a nap in her bedroom instead. Bridget testified that she was in her third-floor room, resting from cleaning windows, when just before 11.10 a.m., she heard Lizzie call from downstairs. Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Andrew was slumped on a couch in the downstairs sitting room, struck 10 or 11 times with a hatchet-like weapon. One of his eyeballs had been split cleanly in two, suggesting that he had been asleep when attacked. Detectives estimated his death had occurred at approximately 11 a.m., Lizzie's initial answers to the police officer's questions were at times strange and contradictory. Initially, she reported hearing a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call before entering the house. But two hours later, she told police she had heard nothing and entered the house not realizing that anything was wrong. Most of the officers who interviewed Lizzie reported that they disliked her attitude. Some said she was too calm and poised. Despite her attitude and changing alibis, nobody bothered to check her for bloodstains. Police did search her room, but it was a cursory inspection. At the trial, they admitted to not doing a proper search because Lizzie was not feeling well. They were subsequently criticized for their lack of diligence. In the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh, and the ash and dust on the head, unlike that on the other bladed tools, appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look as if it had been in the basement for some time. However, none of these tools were removed from the house. Because of the mysterious illness that had stricken the household before the murders, the family's milk and Andrew's and Abby's stomachs, removed during autopsies performed in the Borden dining room, were tested for poison. None was found. Lizzie and Emma's friend, Alice Russell, decided to stay with them the night following the murders, while Morse spent the night in the attic guest room. Police were stationed around the house on the night of August 4th, during which an officer claimed to have seen Lizzie enter the cellar with Russell, carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail. He stated he saw both women exit the cellar, after which Lizzie returned alone, though he was unable to see what she was doing. He stated it appeared she was bent over the sink. On August 5th, Morris left the house and was mobbed by hundreds of people. Police had to escort him back to the house. On August 6th, police conducted a more thorough search of the house, inspecting the sister's clothing and confiscating the broken-handled hatchet head. That evening, a police officer and the mayor visited the Bordens, and Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect in the murders. The next morning, Russell entered the kitchen to find Lizzie tearing up a dress. She explained that she was planning to put it on the fire because it was covered in paint. It was never determined whether it was the dress she had been wearing on the day of the murders. Lizzie appeared at the inquest hearing on August 8th. Her request to have her family attorney present was refused under a state statute, providing that an inquest might be held in private. She had been prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves, and it is possible that her testimony was affected by this. Her behavior was erratic, and she often refused to answer a question even if the answer would be beneficial to her. She often contradicted herself and provided alternating accounts of the morning in question. The district attorney was very aggressive and confrontational. On August 11th, Lizzie was served with a warrant of arrest and jailed. The inquest testimony, the basis for the modern debate regarding her guilt or innocence, was later ruled inadmissible at her trial in June 1893. A grand jury began hearing evidence on November 7th, and Lizzie was indicted on December 2nd. Five days before the trial's commencement on June 1st, another axe murder occurred in Fall River. This time the victim was Bertha Manchester, who was found hacked to death in her kitchen. The similarities between the Manchester and Borden murders were striking and noted by jurors. However, Jose Correa de Mayo, a Portuguese immigrant, was later convicted of Manchester's murder in 1894 and was determined to not have been in the vicinity of Fall River at the time of the Borden murders. A prominent point of discussion in the trial was the hatchet head found in the basement, which was not convincingly demonstrated by the prosecution to be the murder weapon. Prosecutors argued that the killer had removed the handle because it would have been covered in blood. One officer testified that a hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head, but another officer contradicted this. Though no bloody clothing was found at the scene, Russell testified that on August 8, 1892, she had witnessed Borden burn a dress in the kitchen stove. During the course of the trial, defense never attempted to challenge this claim. Lizzie's presence at the home was also a point of dispute during the trial. Bridget entered the second floor of the home at around 10.58 a.m. and left Lizzie and her father downstairs. Lizzie told several people that at this time she went into the barn and was not in the house for 20 minutes or possibly a half hour. Hyman Lubinsky testified for the defense that he saw Lizzie leaving the barn at 11.03 a.m., and Charles Gardner confirmed the time. At 11.10 a.m., Lizzie called Bridget downstairs, told her Andrew had been murdered, and ordered her not to enter the room. Instead, Lizzie sent her to get a doctor. Both victims' heads had been removed during autopsy and the skulls were admitted as evidence during the trial and presented on June 5, 1893. Upon seeing them in the courtroom, Lizzie fainted. Evidence was excluded that Lizzie had sought to purchase prussic acid purportedly for cleaning a sealskin cloak from a local druggist on the day before the murders. The judge ruled that the incident was too remote in time to have any connection. The presiding associate justice, Justin Dewey, delivered a lengthy summary that supported the defense as his charge to the jury before it was sent to deliberate on June 20, 1893. After an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury acquitted Lizzie of the murders. Upon exiting the courthouse, she told reporters she was the happiest woman in the world. After the trial, Lizzie and Emma moved into a large modern house in the Hill neighborhood in Fall River. Because Abby was ruled to have died before Andrew, her estate went first to Andrew and then at his death passed to his daughters as part of the estate. A considerable settlement, however, was paid to settle claims by Abby's family. Despite the acquittal, Lizzie was ostracized by Fall River Society. Her name was again brought into the public eye when she was accused of shoplifting in 1897. In 1905, Emma moved out of the house. She never saw her sister again. Lizzie was ill in her last year following the removal of her gallbladder. She died of pneumonia on June 1, 1927, in Fall River. Emma died from chronic nephritis, that's kidney disease, nine days later. Now, you can't have an incomplete story as sensational as this without having writers trying to come up with their own solutions. In 1967, in her book, A Private Disgrace, Lizzie Borden by Daylight, Victoria Lincoln says that Lizzie committed the murders in a fugue state. There are others who have suggested that Lizzie was sexually abused by her father. In his 1984 book, Lizzie, Frank Spearing suggests that Emma secretly returned from Fairhaven and committed the murders. Also in 1984, in his novel, Lizzie, Ed McBain writes that Lizzie committed the murders after being caught in a lesbian tryst with Bridget Sullivan. Wikipedia does say that Lizzie was rumored to be a lesbian, But there was no such speculation about Bridget, who found other employment after the murders and later married a man she met while working as a maid in Butte, Montana. She died in Butte in 1948, where she allegedly gave a deathbed confession to her sister, stating that she had changed her testimony on the stand in order to protect Lizzie. In 1991, in his book, Lizzie Borden, The Legend, The Truth, The Final Chapter, Arnold Brown brings up a man named William Borden, who was suspected to be Andrew's illegitimate son. He claims that William had tried and failed to extort money from Andrew and then committed the murders. However, after extensive research on the subject, Leonard Ribello, in his 1999 book, Lizzie Borden, Past and Present, determines that William Borden was in fact not Andrew Borden's son. In her 1993 article in American Studies, Lizzie Borden Took an Axe, History, Feminism, and American Culture, Anne Schofield says, Borden's story has tended to take one or the other of two fictional forms, the tragic romance and the feminist quest. You can see that in the various depictions in music, radio, film, theater, and television. But before we go there, did you know that there's a little-known second verse Andrew Borden now is dead, Lizzie hit him on the head, up in heaven he will sing, on the gallows she will swing. No, I'd never heard it before either. And if you want more of this, check out The Hatchet, a journal of Lizzie Borden and Victorian studies, at lizzieandrewborden.com forward slash hatchetonline. Now, about those other performance depictions, one of the earliest, if not the earliest, was in the 1936 radio program, Unsolved Mysteries.
1: Unsolved Mysteries. The Gordon case is undoubtedly without parallel in the criminal annals of America. It is perhaps the most puzzling murder which has occurred anywhere in the whole world. The perpetrator of this double murder was saved from the gallows by a most extraordinary chain of circumstances, circumstances which perhaps would not recur in a thousand years.
0: This program has its own solution to the mystery.
1: A careful reading without emotion or favor of the trial transcript must convince any unprejudiced person that Lizzie Borden did not commit the double murder. Since this is an unsolved mystery, any solution is necessarily a supposition based, however, upon the known fact. On two occasions previous to the Borden murders, the Borden home had been robbed of jewelry and money. Stray tramps had probably perpetrated the robberies, And remember that these gentlemen of the highway leave secret markings on walls and houses informing their brothers of the road that these houses are easy to rob. Or perhaps a mark that tells that the householder is kindly and that food will be forthcoming. It is the morning of the murder.
2: Lizzie? Lizzie? Yes, Mother? I'm going to town to visit a friend who isn't feeling well. Now, Mother? I'm going to my room to dress first. Have Bridget wash the windows. Yes, Mother. Bridget? Bridget? Oh, Bridget. Yes, Miss Lizzie. I'm going to do some ironing. Will you wash the windows? Yes, Miss Lizzie. I've got the water and everything ready now. I'm going right outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Both of the irons won't be hot
3: for quite a spell.
2: I'll go over to the barn and get the lead and make these sinkers for my fishing line.
1: A tramp hidden in the basement since early morning makes his way into the house. This is his opportunity for petty theft. The house is empty, he thinks. In the upper room, he comes face to face with Mrs. Borden. He silences her unuttered cry with a blow. Panic seizes him and he turns to flee. Escape is impossible. Lizzie Borden has returned from the barn and tremblingly, the murderer hides in the same room where his victim lies dead.
2: Here's your father, Miss Lizzie. I'm going up to my room for a few minutes. Very well, Bridget. Oh, hello, Father.
1: Yeah, hello, Lizzie.
4: You
2: may open me, Father.
1: No, not a thing, Lizzie. I'm tired. I think I'll lie down for a bit on the sofa.
2: No, all right. I'm going out of the barn for a piece of iron.
1: The murderer, still hidden in the upper room, hears the door slam. He creeps downstairs to the living room, sees Mr. Borden on the sofa, and, thinking he's asleep, tries to creep past him. Borden looks up, sees the blood-stained figure, but, like Mrs. Borden, he is silenced with a blow before he can say a word. The back door creaks. Lizzie's returning. In a moment, the hue and cry will be raised. The murderer's only chance is to hide in the basement and wait for an opportune moment to escape. And so Fall River had an unsolved mystery. For the police, despite a statement that a murderer could have entered the house through the basement, didn't even look in the basement till the next day. And the murderer had, of course, made his escape in the dark of the previous night.
0: Yes, that's right. Unsolved Mysteries falls for the stray tramp robbing the house theory to explain the murders. Not so, Agnes DeMille, in her ballet Fall River Legend, in which she actually has Lizzie found guilty in her trial.
5: jurors on their oath present that the accused of Fall River in the county of Bristol at Fall River in the county of Bristol on the fourth day of August in the year 1892 in and upon her stepmother and upon her father feloniously willfully and of her malice aforethought, an assault did make and with a certain weapon to wit an axe did cut, strike, beat, and bruise in and upon the heads of them, giving to them divers, to wit, 20 mortal wounds, of which said mortal wounds they there and then instantly died. And so the jurors, upon their oath, do say that the said accused did kill, and murder against the peace of the Commonwealth, a true bill.
0: On April 13th, 1955, on the television series Playbill, Ruth Springford played Lizzie in the play, Lizzie Borden Took an Axe. On March 24th, 1957, there was an episode of Omnibus, which presented two different adaptations. The first was a play The Trial of Lizzie Borden, and the second was a production of Agnes DeMille's Fall River Legend. 1965 brought us the Jack Beeson opera, Lizzie Borden. In 1975, ABC showed the TV movie The Legend of Lizzie Borden, starring Elizabeth Montgomery as Lizzie and Katherine Helmond as Emma.
4: How long was your father in the house before you found him
1: killed?
6: I don't know exactly, because I had to go out to the barn. I don't think he could have been home more than 15 or 20 minutes.
4: And what were you doing in the barn all this time?
6: I needed some lead for a sinker.
4: Did you say a sinker?
6: Yes, sir, I, I was going to Marion on Monday to fish. I needed a sinker.
4: And that's all you did, look for sinkers?
6: Yes, sir, in the loft.
4: You think that would take you 15 or 20 minutes?
6: I ate some pears up there.
1: I asked you to tell me all you did.
6: I told you all I did. I ate my pears.
0: I saw that at the time, and it was a little risque for 1970s television because the solution in that one has Lizzie taking off all her clothes and then completely nude, going to kill Abby, going back to her room, washing all of the blood off of her, putting her clothes back on, emptying the bloody tub of water into the outhouse, I believe, coming back up again, taking her clothes off again, and going down and murdering her father, repeating the cleaning off of the blood and the dumping of the tub of water, along with the hatchet, which goes into the outhouse. In 2014, Lifetime produced lizzie borden took an axe starring christina rishi here's part of the trailer
1: she killed her parents well i'm just having a difficult time believing she could do this
3: you know why i didn't run because i thought to myself that's what killers do
1: she's an insane woman did you see your mother upstairs
5: miss borden did you love your mother
0: In that film, Lizzie turns out to be guilty as well. In 2015, Christina followed up with The Lizzie Borden Chronicles, an eight-part miniseries that dealt with Lizzie's life after the trial.
7: We have a lot of freedom because it's really is fiction. We're just taking sort of this iconic character and um, imagining what could have happened.
0: This is your second go-around playing her. Mm-hmm. Did, what do you think? Do you think she did it?
7: It serves our story for her to have done it. Um, we certainly are selling that.
3: <laughs> We're certainly
7: sticking with yeah. it. <laughs> but I mean, there's been so much um, conjecture about this, or, um, so we no one really knows anymore.
0: Twenty eighteen brought us the film *Lizzie*, starring Chloe Sevigny as Lizzie and Kristen Stewart as Bridget, in which the two characters have a lesbian relationship and plan the murders together after Lizzie's father sexually assaults Bridget. Here is some of that trailer.
6: The new housemaid, ma'am. It's Bridget. My name's Lizzie.
0: Do you find your room comfortable? It can get quite hot up there. Sometimes it's best to leave the door open.
6: It's all right, sweet girl. Father, have you done something?
4: Have I done something? Eat, Lizzie. I said you will eat.
0: No! No! You would apologize to your mother. Don't you dare call her my mother? There are also various episodes of Biography, Biography Extra, History's Mysteries, and a short episode of Watch Mojo's Top five facts. Here's one of those facts.
7: Number three, the coroner didn't write the rhyme apparently. Speaking of the trial, the skulls of Abby and Andrew Borden made a shocking appearance in front of the Massachusetts jury, but the remains didn't feature the sort of ax wounds one might expect from Lizzie's infamous rhyme. Instead, the murder weapon was likely a small hatchet used to deliver approximately 19 blows to Abby and 10 or 11 to Mr. Borden. These blows were quite gruesome and forceful, however, severely damaging the father's head and face. This shocking violence caused quite a commotion in the crowd, as well as a swoon by Lizzie in the court.
0: Okay, so there's all sorts of Lizzie Borden programs with all sorts of possible solutions. But what about our program? And what about our solution? Here at last is Hitch, holding an ax right under his chin with the blade pointed up at his throat. And I should add that again, because they seem to want to eliminate all the references to the sponsors, my DVD omits the last few words of his intro, which I will add myself after Hitch is done.
4: This is an axe. I say this for the information of those of you whose television tubes may have burned out. I wish to reach the widest possible audience. Tonight we have a story based on one of our most celebrated murder cases one that rocked Fall River, Massachusetts, and the entire country, late in the last century. The crime was, and still is, a shocking one. But since it actually happened, and is a matter of record, we've felt it unwise to pretty up the details to make them palatable for the squeamish. Tonight's theme song will be that familiar little ditty everybody knows. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax, And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. I venture that by this time, you can see we are not presenting a romantic comedy tonight. However, we shall not reenact the crime. We had intended to, but casting difficulties interfered. Oh, we had no trouble casting the mother and father but we kept losing them in rehearsals. So instead, we shall show you a slightly different interpretation of the Lizzie Borden story. It begins just one year from the time of the murder.
0: And just one minute from now. So here's The Older Sister. First broadcast January 22nd, 1956. Starring Joan Loring Carmen Matthews, and Polly Rolls. Teleplay by Robert C. Dennis. Based on a play, although the credits say based on a story, by Lillian de la Torre. Directed by Robert Stevens. It begins with a little girl running a stick against the wrought-iron pickets of the fence of the Borden home, reciting that familiar rhyme.
3: Lizzie Borden took a gave her mother forty whacks, when she saw her tea had done, gave her father forty one. Lizzie Borden took a gave her mother That's a wicked, wicked thing to say. Now you come home right now and stop annoying Miss
0: Lizzie. Now before we go any further, let me just say that the little girl is our old friend Wendy Winkleman in her last of three appearances on the show. And the woman who stops her, presumably her mother, is played by Kay Stewart, who we saw last in The Case of Mr. Pelham, episode number 10. She's in five episodes in all, and her next one is Crack of Doom, episode nine of season two. Let's rewind a few seconds back to the beginning of the show to point out that the camera follows the little girl as she walks along the fence Leading her and us to her mother, who stops her and chides her, as we heard. That's a
3: wicked, wicked thing to say. You come home right now and stop annoying Miss
0: Lizzie. And then looks at the Borden house. Once the mother looks at the house, the camera cuts to a shot of the window at which the mother is looking. And there is somebody peering out the window. Once we see that, the camera cuts to inside the house. And we see who is looking out the window. It's Pat Hitchcock in a small role as the maid, Margaret, sporting, as you'll soon hear, a light Irish accent. And now that we're inside the house, we are trapped. The camera never ventures out again. There is one shot of the outside, but it's shown from the inside. So we are stuck with whoever ends up stuck in that house. And it's not really surprising because the episode is based on a short play by Lillian de la Torre. She was born Lillian de la Torre Bueno McHugh, and she was a prolific writer of historical mysteries. Her first novel was Elizabeth is Missing, or Truth Triumphant, and according to the New York Times, it rebutted 12 theories on the disappearance of a maidservant near the Tower of London in 1753, and then it offered Miss de la Torre's own answer. A book review in the Times said she had combined the scholarly patience of a candidate for a PhD with the ingenuity of a Nero Wolfe. And Joseph Wood Crutch called the book certainly the best and most ingenious account of the famous Elizabeth Canning mystery. Another of her books was Villainy Detected, subtitled A Collection of the Most Sensational True Crimes and Most Notorious Real Criminals that Blotted the Name of Britain in the years 1660 to 1800. She also wrote 33 stories that featured Dr. Samuel Johnson and James Boswell as the 18th century versions of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Samuel Johnson was a noted English writer of the day, and James Boswell his admiring biographer. These were her most popular works. In her obituary in the New York Times, it is stated that she defined her work as the solving of hitherto unexplained mysteries of bygone times. So what better topic than Lizzie Borden? This is her only work associated with Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Lillian de La Torre died in 1993 at the age of 91. Now, according to Jack Seabrook at barebonesez.blogspot.com, she wrote her short play entitled Goodbye, Miss Lizzie Borden, in nineteen forty-seven, and it was performed on stage in nineteen forty-eight in Miss Dillatory's hometown of Colorado Springs, Colorado. It was then published that year, and it was first adapted for television as part of the actor studio series. It was broadcast live on Sunday, november twenty first, nineteen forty-eight on ABC. And Jack says, if it survives, I have not found it online. The second adaptation was for radio and it aired on Suspense on October 4th, 1955, less than four months before this Hitchcock television version.
1: And now, tonight's presentation of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Tonight, we bring you transcribed a story of what might have happened in the famous Lizzie Borden case. We call it, Goodbye, Miss Lizzie Borden. So now, starring Paula Winslow, Virginia Gregg, and Irene Tedrow, here is tonight's suspense play, Goodbye, Miss Lizzie Borden.
0: Now, even though the radio adaptation was written by Lillian de la Torre, it is not an exact duplication of her play, though it's certainly a lot closer than Robert C. Dennis's version for this Hitchcock episode, which follows the basic outline but changes quite a bit of the dialogue, as well as changing the title. Although interestingly enough, Dennis preserves the play's title as Nell's parting shot.
8: Goodbye, Miss Lizzie Borden.
0: Which the radio play does not do.
2: Goodbye, Miss Lizzie.
0: This is Robert C. Dennis's fourth teleplay after "Don't Come Back Alive," "Our Cook's a Treasure," and "Guilty Witness." His next one is coming right up. Episode 19: The Derelicts. In any event, just to give you an idea, here's the opening of the Hitchcock episode after the moment with the little girl, of course, and then the opening of the radio play.
3: You'll miss your train, Miss Emma. Have you got everything, Miss Emma? My grip, my lunch, my purse, my gloves, my umbrella. I'll get it. Well, now, what did I do
7: with my purse? Oh, there it is. Oh, dear, oh, dear, I know I've forgotten something.
0: Something. Is that everything, ma'am?
7: Huh? Oh, oh, yes, Uh, just the two suitcases. What are you doing with the trunk, Expressman? There isn't any trunk, only the two bags. I'm only going for a short visit.
2: It's my trunk, Miss Emma. I'm leaving. Oh, Maggie. It's all right, Expressman. You can take the trunk out.
1: Yes, ma'am.
0: So we already discover in the radio show that Maggie, or Margaret, as she's called in the television version, is leaving. We're introduced to her that way. It's interesting that Lillian De La Torre used the name Maggie for her maid because you'll recall that Bridget Sullivan was known as Maggie to the Bordens. But this is not Bridget Sullivan. This is the maid that follows Bridget. Now, in her review of this episode, the pie lady, Jacqueline Pye, at piladyanthology.wordpress.com gives it a C minus. She says it's just a lot of talking and badgering. She also says the twist is revealed a bit early before the end. And I can see that point of view. There really isn't much of a twist to the story, and there's little suspense in terms of any of the characters feeling threatened, because we're pretty sure that neither of the two sisters actually killed the other, or killed a Snoopy reporter, even if we don't know the details of the actual history. And it's a pretty fair bet that Robert C. Dennis was not going to pull a Quentin Tarantino on us. But I don't think that's the point of this story. What the story boils down to, to me, is a character study, or more specifically, a character power play. Ultimately, it's a struggle between Lizzie Borden, played by Carmen Matthews, Emma Borden, played by Joan Loring, and the newspaper reporter Nell Cutts, who seems to be clearly based on Nellie Bly, played by Polly Rolls. And there's a fourth participant, not counting Margaret, who's in just the very beginning, because the camera plays along as well, either as an instigator or a referee, turning its focus on whomever may be ascendant in that particular moment. The camera being orchestrated by our director, Robert Stevens, with whom we're quite familiar at this point. This is his sixth episode, following Premonition, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, The Cheney Vase and you got to have luck. It's also his second of three in a row. So we'll see him next time with Shopping for Death. And so it is that our first moment inside the house is with Margaret the maid. Emma comes down the stairs. Margaret goes to her. The camera follows so that they both end up in the shot. At the point that Emma says, My umbrella. And Margaret says, I'll get it. She concedes her position to Emma. We know this not just because she's the servant, but because when she leaves, the camera stays behind, leaving us with a solo shot of Emma. It's only after Margaret returns that we learn that she is leaving the house as well.
3: Margaret, will you tell Miss Lizzie that I've gone to haven? No, Miss Emma, I won't be here. I'm leaving too. Margaret! I only stayed this long for your sake, Miss Emma. I couldn't bear to leave you alone with her. I know. But when I come back from my vacation, she'll have another servant in the kitchen before then. How can she get another? I don't know. I only know I I can't stand it no more. I'll be minding my own business. There she'll be, standing there, just looking at me.
0: And with this reference to Lizzie... The camera moves away from both characters and focuses on the staircase, even though no one is on it. This not only anticipates the moment when Lizzie will be on the staircase, but it also demonstrates that her presence is so forceful that it draws the camera over to the stairs, even when she isn't there. At that point, Margaret walks into the shot, and the camera realigns with her and Emma. There's an interesting shot of the two women standing in front of the hallway mirror, We see both of them and their reflections in the mirror, perhaps a moment of bonding. Before the doorbell rings, which takes Margaret away, the camera stays with Emma, and we hear Nell's voice before we ever see Nell. In fact, it's only when Emma starts to flee the scene and the camera follows her that that movement brings Nell and Margaret back into the picture.
8: Good day. Is Miss Lizzie
3: Borden in? Miss Borden is out.
8: Hello? Miss Borden?
3: No, you mustn't come in. We don't see anyone.
0: Of course I'll come in.
3: I'm leaving, Miss Emma. Margaret, don't go now. So this is the scene of the crime.
0: With her, of course I'll come in, and her height advantage over Emma, Nell seems to take over. But when she goes into the parlor, the camera stays with Emma and Margaret, long enough for Margaret to say she's leaving. Margaret leaves, and she's gone. We never see her again. Emma... Moves into the parlor, ceding ascendancy to Nell.
8: And this is the picture that got so much attention at the trial, hmm? I'm surprised you haven't replaced it. It must bring back very many unpleasant memories. I see you've had it cleaned. You are Miss Lizzie Borden, I presume. I must say, you're not exactly what I expected. I'm not Miss Lizzie. I'm Emma. Oh, the sister. Hmm. Well. Let's see, it's been a year since your mother and father My stepmother and my
3: father.
0: Well, it's the same thing.
8: I missed your sister's trial. She's quite an old girl, they tell me.
0: So Nell has already taken the upper hand, but at the point that Emma admits she's not Lizzie, she really seizes control, so much that when she walks away, the camera follows her, and Emma must keep up to get back into the picture. Now, speaking of pictures, if you're wondering about the picture on the wall... Robert C. Dennis has been very subtle about it. Here's the same scene from the radio play.
7: No, no, you can't come in. My
2: sister won't see you. Please take your shoe out of the door. So this is oh. the scene of the crime. Oh, please. Walks found over there? Please, my sister. Nice pattern all over the walls. Had them repapered, haven't you? Oh. Nice happy pattern, too. Oh, this is the picture, isn't it? The one that had 46 blood spots on it. You're Miss Lizzie Borden, I presume. Oh, no, no, i I must not. say you're not what I expected. Out west where I come from, when a woman's tough, she's tough. Now, Miss Lizzie, oh, I'm I' here am to not Miss Lizzie. I'm Miss Emma. Oh, oh, the sister! that accounts for it. Well, Miss Emma, this is the anniversary of the second street murders, isn't it? It's just the year since Mr. and Mrs. Borden were murdered. Since by- my father and stepmother died. We don't talk
8: about it. I missed your sister's trial. Some old girl, I heard.
0: So now Nell introduces herself.
8: Now I represent the Sacramento record. You're one of those reporters, that's right. And I'm here to collect a few impressions for my newspaper. Second Street Revisited, all that sort of thing, you know?
0: At this moment, Nell moves, and the camera doesn't follow her. It stays on Emma. So has Emma regained the upper hand? No. It stays with her because of what she says.
3: Oh, dear, Lizzie hates reporters. She won't talk to you for a moment.
0: So just like the mention of Lizzie drew the camera to the stairs, Emma's reference to Lizzie hating reporters... Keeps the camera on Emma. But the camera then moves back in a quick cut to Nell as she finds something on a nearby table.
8: Say, isn't
3: this a gold nugget? Yes. Uncle Morse brought it back from the gold fields.
8: Well, now isn't that a coincidence? I'm from those same gold fields myself. Uh, is your Uncle Morse um, an old codger, around 60 ish, maybe? with a drooping mustache
3: and a sounds like him do you know uncle morse
8: knew him well in sacramento put her there miss emma how do you do miss nell cuts just call me nell
0: now emma has moved back into the frame during this conversation but nell moves forward so she fills most of the screen emma's in the background as nell concocts this story about knowing uncle morse it's done a little bit differently in the radio show emma is more gullible perhaps because we need to convey this just with sound. And interestingly enough, it's not a gold nugget in the radio show or in the play. It's a painting, which seems to indicate that Uncle Morris was far less successful in the gold fields in the stage play and radio play than in the television episode. Uncle Morris has painted these paintings himself. In the stage play, it's Sutter's Fort, but in the radio play, it's...
2: hey a picture of Pike's Peak on the wall. Oh, yes. It's quite artistic, isn't it?
7: Uncle Morse brought it back to me from the fields. It's all he brought back. He
2: painted it himself. Now, isn't that a coincidence? I'm from the Pike's Peak fields myself. Oh, Morse, Morse. Is your Uncle Morris an old codger, 60-ish maybe, a, a, with... A, a droopy mustache? That's it, a droopy mustache and a sort it's of... Tall and thin. Oh, my goodness. Do you know Uncle Morris? I should say I do. I knew him well in Cripple Creek. How oh. is the old child? Put her there, Miss Emma. Any niece of old man Morris is a friend of mine.
0: So in both versions, Nell tries to press her advantage. In the TV episode, Emma tries to get away, and the camera tries to get away with her. There's a quick cut to Emma's back as she's walking off, but Nell steps into the frame and cuts her off and takes control once again.
8: Tell me, Miss Emma, is it true that on the morning of the murders, breakfast consisted of bananas, cookies, and cold mutton soup? I don't know. I wasn't
3: here. I was in Fairhaven.
8: Cold mutton soup in August. No wonder somebody committed murder. Miss Emma, now tell me, how does it feel to take three meals a day with a woman who was a murderer, who was tried for murder?
3: i have to get away that's why i'm going to Fairhaven for a while oh dear i mustn't miss the 337 you won't miss it
0: during this sequence emma tries to get away nell takes a hold of her and steers her towards the window the camera follows but when nell says i uh, i suppose that living with miss lizzie must be very trying on the nerves she sits down giving emma the dominant position but again It's not because we're talking about Emma, we're talking about Lizzie.
3: She can hear everything we say. Her room is right up
8: there. Yes, but she wasn't in her room on the morning the murders were committed, was she? She was in the barn eating pears,
0: so she says.
3: Yes, she was. She was out there.
0: At this point, Nell stands and takes over the narrative again as she starts to recount the events of the murder. Well,
8: now let me get this clear in my mind. Mrs. Vorden was found upstairs, wasn't she?
3: That's right.
8: And there was no one in the house at the time excepting a servant. Where did she go? I'd like to get a statement from her, too. Oh,
3: it wasn't, Margaret. We had another girl then. But she left us. When it happened, they, they all leave us.
0: Nell continues her narrative, and an interesting thing happens. For the very beginning of it, when she leaves to go to the front door, the camera stays with Emma. Hmm. I wonder what that's all about. Now the servant hears your father
8: at the front door. She goes to let him in.
0: By Nell's next line, the camera is back with her at the front door. And the music starts to rise, too. But the door is triple locked. Nobody could have gotten in that way.
8: The servant's unlocking the door, and meanwhile, upstairs, the murderer is gloating over the first victim. The servant goes out to market. Your father enters. He locks the door behind her and relaxes on the sofa not knowing that his wife is lying dead upstairs don't
0: at the mention of the sofa the camera shows a shot of the unoccupied sofa so now the murder itself the memory of the murder itself has gained ascendancy and what is the next shot we get after the sofa a close-up of emma hmm i wonder why we're getting a close-up of emma when we're talking about the murder of her father Well, one reason for it is so that Robert Stevens can play a little trick on us. When the camera leaves Emma, it focuses on a pair of legs in a long dress walking down the steps as Nell continues to narrate. It looks for all the world like Lizzie is coming down the steps, but that's not it at all. It's the memory of someone coming down the steps, the recreation. The
8: murderer comes down the stairs, She's in there, alone, asleep. She creeps up on the old man from behind with the axe and brings it down!
0: The camera has followed those legs from the stairs to the sofa. But at the moment that the axe is brought down, it switches to show us that the culprit in this case is Nell, having taken a walking stick from the umbrella stand, and she is striking the sofa with it. In the background, Emma reacts. (laughs) Again, the camera switches just to Emma, forcing Nell to enter the picture as she confronts her about who did the murder.
8: It was Miss Lizzie, wasn't it? Wasn't it? No, no, it couldn't have been. She was out in the bar. Yes, just standing there quietly eating pears. Now, how could anyone from the outside have done it? That door was locked, but she could see the side door. How could they escape right under Miss Lizzie's eyes if Miss Lizzie was telling the truth? Was she Miss Emma? I told you, I don't know. I wasn't here. I was in Fairhaven. Fairhaven. My train, you must excuse me now. What about the kitten, Miss Emma? Oh,
9: dear.
0: The mention of the kitten again switches the camera to only Emma, until Nell again enters the frame to continue the pressure about the kitten. The
8: kitten was found dead in the cellar. It had been killed with an axe, too.
3: The kitten was the hardest. I cried for a week and brought my neuralgia back again. But Lizzie didn't cry, and it was her kitten.
8: Miss Emmy, you'll have to forgive me, but I have to ask this question. Is there a history of
3: insanity in your family? Certainly not. That was the first thing they started asking about, especially about
8: Uncle Morse. Oh, yes, he arrived for a visit the day before the murders, didn't he?
3: Yes, he did. And the police were horrid about him. They kept asking people if he was quite right in the head. Uncle Morse is as sane as I am.
0: The camera moves in just a little bit when Nell asks the question about insanity in the family. Just the tiniest of hints.
8: Lizzie was the only one who didn't have an alibi, so they arrested her. But she was acquitted. I know. Beats me how they ever acquitted her, though.
3: It's simple. Hmm? You said yourself there were stains all over. Whoever did it would have been stained too. But the whole world saw Lizzie within 10 minutes of the crime and she hadn't a spot on her. Maybe she used an apron, one of those big
8: coverall aprons. They never found one. They never found the ax either, did they?
3: No.
0: So now all the exposition has come out. Those of us who started watching the show not knowing the details of the Borden murders now know the details. But through the use of the camera, we've also gotten some hints. And it is shortly after this, that Lizzie finally arrives at the top of the stairs in a low angle shot holding a cat right in the position where the camera looked before when she wasn't there. Now the camera switches to her and she will be in every shot until she cedes the power to someone else.
9: Emma, you know we don't see anyone.
3: But Lizzie, this is different. This is a friend of Uncle Morris. Go upstairs, Emma.
0: All right, Lizzie. Emma obeys in what I think is an interesting little glitch, because when she re-enters, the first thing she says is, Missed my train. Well, of course she's missed her train. She was upstairs. In the stage play, Lizzie tells her to go upstairs, and Emma seizes the initiative and instead runs out the front door to go to get her train, which she, of course, misses. In the radio play, Lizzie doesn't send her upstairs. Instead, she says...
6: You're going to miss your train, Emma. Oh, yes, Lizzie.
7: Oh, dear. Perhaps I should have called a cab, but it's only a step from here. Goodbye, Lizzie.
0: Goodbye. What's nice about the Hitchcock version is that the house becomes a prison for both of the sisters, and whoever escapes the house first wins. So you can't have Emma leave the house and then come back later. In any event, with Emma gone from the immediate scene... Lizzie now deals with Nell.
9: Now, miss. Uh, miss Borden, I represent the Sacramento record. You're a friend of Uncle Morse, eh? What color hair has the old man got? Gray. Uh, what there is of it. There's plenty of it, and it's completely white. You never saw Uncle Morse in your life. Good day. Miss Borden, my paper wants an
8: interview. I don't give interviews. Well, then just answer this one question, Miss Lizzie. What became of the apron? I have nothing to say. And the axe? Why wasn't the fireplace searched, Miss Lizzie? Good day.
0: So Lizzie has rid herself of Nell, but Nell's comment about the fireplace being searched has gotten Lizzie spooked. She first picks up the walking stick that Nell has left on the sofa. Then she goes over to the fireplace, seems to press a button to open a secret chamber of the fireplace, and the axe is right there, right at hand. It's far too easy, and anybody searching that house would have found that in an instant. Here's the stage direction in the play. First of all, it's a poker that Nell picks up and uses to hit the sofa, not a walking stick. So in the play, the directions say that with the poker... Lizzie forces open the secret panel, then thrusts in her arm to the elbow and begins groping for something. Here, though, once the axe is pulled out, the camera moves in for a tight close-up of it. We still get Lizzie's hand, but it seems pretty clear that in a battle between the axe and Lizzie, the axe holds all the power. Lizzie takes the axe over to the dining room table. She goes to close the doors, but Emma enters, and she spots something on the table. That's the axe. Yes, Emma. You hit I
9: had to, in the fireplace.
3: wondered where the axe got to
9: i didn't see how they could search and search and never find it father kept money hidden there he thought no one knew about his hiding place and once he was dead
0: nobody did know except me lizzie leaves the frame at that moment and for just one second emma is alone in the frame
9: there's a way to tell isn't there who's been handling a weapon i mean i don't know lizzie you've
3: always been the clever one I don't see any marks on it.
9: I don't either. But they say the police can tell. Besides, the store mark is etched on it. Lots of people buy axes. This one was bought in Fairhaven. I don't know what you mean. Yes, you do, Emma.
0: And at this moment, the camera leaves Lizzie and focuses full on Emma's face as Lizzie says, You bought that axe.
3: And
9: you knew all the time. I saw you from the barn. You came out the side door. I saw your face. That was all I needed. You ran into the street. I came in and found Father. You shouldn't have used my apron, Emma. It was the handiest, Lizzie. I only had a minute. I threw it in the fireplace, and it burned. But I had to hide the axe. There was only one place. It was safe. Until that newspaper woman started getting ideas. Why did you do it, Emma? I hated her too, but not enough to. You couldn't have hated her as much as I did.
0: Briefly, while Lizzie talks about how she hid the axe, she seizes control of the camera back again but when she asks emma why she did it the camera goes to emma
3: lizzie don't you see she was wicked she ruined everything for us we could have been married and happy now but she prevented it she even turned father against us
9: so you killed him too
3: i had to lizzie he was wicked too she made him wicked
0: And now Emma has not only taken over the camera, but Lizzie sits down. Emma has taken on the position of authority. This is the twist, by the way, insofar as there is a twist, that Emma is the killer, not Lizzie, and Lizzie has been protecting her. I've
9: wondered so long. Time after time, I wanted to ask you. When they were examining me and cross-examining me and hounding me, I wanted so much to know the truth so I'd know what to say.
3: Lizzie, why didn't you ask me? I'd have told you.
9: I never dared. I made so many mistakes. I shouldn't have said that I hadn't seen anyone leave by the side door. I should have said that I'd seen a big bearded man carrying an axe. But I wasn't used to lying.
0: And in this sequence, Emma kneels down and takes Lizzie's hands but Emma is still the one that is holding the camera.
3: Oh, Lizzie. All the time I was in Fairhaven, I kept seeking for an answer. And then the answer came to me. And I went to the shed
9: and got out the axe and came back to Fall River. What a risk you ran. They might have found out that you'd been away from Fairhaven. Oh, it's no risk.
3: Nobody saw me. Someone protected
0: me. I protected you. In that moment, Lizzie gets the camera again all to herself. But then Emma stands up, and Lizzie does not get the camera to herself again until the doorbell rings. By the way, Robert C. Dennis took the explicit religion out of Emma's statement. He has her say... Someone protected me. But in the radio play, Lillian has Emma say...
7: Oh, I prayed for guidance, Lizzie. All the time I was at Fairhaven, I stayed in my room and prayed for guidance. What's that got to do with it? Why, don't you see? When the answer came to me, I just got the axe and started for Fall River. They thought I was still in my room. What a risk that was. Oh, no. No risk, Lizzie. My prayers for guidance were answered. Don't you see? I was protected.
0: I protected you. And the stage play is even more explicit. Emma says, don't you see... When the answer came to me, I just got the axe out of the shed and started for Fall River. They thought I was still in my room, I guess, praying for guidance. They didn't know I had had my answer. Lizzie, what a risk you ran. Emma, oh no, Lizzie, no risk at all. The Lord told me what to do, and he protected me. Nobody recognized me. The Lord protected me. Lizzie, I protected you. Let's go back to where we left off.
9: I protected you. Why? Why did you
3: let them arrest you? Why did you protect me, Lizzie?
9: Because you're my sister, Emma. There's no one else I cared about. You're all I have left.
3: Oh, Liz. I'm sorry about your kitten. I didn't have to kill your kitten. That was bad forget this. Oh,
0: Emma, Emma. This confession of killing the kitten with no real explanation as to why it was necessary is one of the first indications we get that Emma is not sane. Besides references like, Uncle Morris is as sane as I am. We'll get a full realization of that very shortly.
9: <gasps> what would you
3: have done if they found you guilty?
9: Gone through with it, I suppose. I used to think I've had enough, I'll tell them now. And then that prosecutor would come in with his pious face and I'd say to myself, they shan't break me.
3: Lizzie, you always had a will of your own.
9: What would you have done, Emma, if they'd found me guilty?
3: Oh, I didn't worry about it. I knew the answer would come to me when the time came.
9: So you didn't worry about it? You let me go through with it. Sitting in court, the crowd hating me, hissing at me, wanting me dead.
3: There she is. Mrs. Borden. I'm going upstairs.
0: And you know, something creepy or crazy is going on when there's theremin music. Emma runs out to the foyer and looks at the stairs. And as Lizzie says,
9: There's no one on the stairs, Emma.
0: The camera shows us the unoccupied stairs. This is the second time we've had a camera shot of the unoccupied stairs. The first time, you'll recall, was early on when Margaret said,
3: I only know I I can't stand it no more. I'll be minding my own business, and there she'll be standing there, just looking at me.
0: For Margaret, Lizzie is the ultimate power in the house, an almost supernatural figure. But for Emma, we now see that the ultimate power in the house is Mrs. Borden, a real supernatural presence. And this could be because the real power in the house is not Emma herself, but Emma's madness. And that madness is haunted by ghosts as seen by the empty stairs and by the earlier shot of the empty couch where her father was killed. When the doorbell yanks her back to reality, that power is gone. But it also releases Emma, who is allowed to escape. Now, this transition to Emma suddenly being delusional does seem rather abrupt. And that's because Robert C. Dennis has eliminated the transition from the play, which helps to guide us in there a little bit better, perhaps because they decided there was a bit too much for television.
7: You had the easy part. You didn't have to do it. I thought it would be like chopping wood. It isn't. Wood splits. The other strikes back. It stops you. Wood doesn't bleed, Lizzie. It doesn't fly. Jump at you.
2: The air fills it. I all the walls.
7: You don't know. You don't know anything. You didn't have to do it. I I didn't want to. Uh, uh, listen, there she is, Mrs. Borden.
0: Wood doesn't bleed, Lizzie. It's a very chilling line. And so, with the theremin music playing in the background, Emma decides she has to kill Mrs. Borden again. She goes over to a chair and picks up a conveniently placed apron which she puts on, and then she grabs the axe and starts to go up the stairs. Lizzie stops her, and Emma turns on Lizzie. Emma not only now has the power of madness and the power of the axe, but she's standing in a higher step than Lizzie, giving her physical ascendancy.
9: We'll just go and see Dr. Bowen. No, they'll put me away. I won't have it, Lizzie. I'll die first.
3: I don't have to die, do I? Nobody knows but you.
9: think, Emma, you can't escape
3: twice. Yes, I can. I do what I have to do. The rest takes care of itself.
0: Emma grabs Lizzie by the wrist and forces her to her knees, waving the axe above Lizzie's head. And Lizzie's protestations don't seem to matter much but she is literally saved by the bell.
9: I took care of you. I hid the
3: axe for you. I know. That's how I knew there was to be another. As soon as I saw the axe, I knew. Uh, Wait, Emma. Don't talk, Lizzie.
9: Take off the apron, Emma, and answer the door. Answer the door, Emma.
0: With that command, the camera shows us Lizzie all alone for the first time since she ceded the power to Emma. And Emma reverts back to her mousy self. She allows Lizzie to take the axe away from her without resistance. She takes off the apron and she goes to answer the door. Now, what Lizzie should have done is tell Emma to wait a few minutes before answering the door. Then she would have time to put the axe back in the hiding place in the fireplace. But instead, she runs into the dining room and she doesn't have time to do anything more than put the axe on the table and put the newspaper on top of the ax, which is pretty flimsy and feels pretty artificial, which it is, because we need some easy way for Nell to uncover the ax.
8: Miss Lizzie, I just had to come back to get a statement. My editor will have a fit if he doesn't get one. Very well, young woman, but be quick about it. Well, I've been thinking about that murder weapon that was never found. Now, what's your opinion? Where did it get to?
9: Well, I think that the murderer carried it away with him. Oh, fine, that's good. I need something to write on. Oh, Emma, get your friend a book to write on. The axe isn't around here or the police would have found it. It's not easy to destroy. You can burn the handle, but what about the head? Oh, say, I never thought of that, you know. Say, isn't this the Providence Journal? I'd like to take
8: a look at this. I hear it's a...
0: And with Nell finding the axe, Lizzie hustles Emma out of the house in a hurry assuming the responsibility and the burden of being in the house. And Lizzie is in every shot from this point until the end of the episode, except one. That one is a reversal of what we saw at the beginning of the episode, when the little girl's mother looked towards the house, and we had a point of view shot from her to the window. Now, Lizzie and Nell look out the window, and we get their point of view shot of Emma talking to the little girl's mother.
3: Oh, you'll have a lovely visit in Fairhaven, Miss Emma. Oh, it's not a visit. You're never coming back? No, I said goodbye to Lizzie. I'm never coming back to this house again.
0: The two of them stand on the outside of the wrought iron fence. Emma is free. She's out of the cage. And if the goal was to escape the house, then Emma has won. Except that she's taking her madness along with her. Although she's blissfully unaware of it, the burden of the madness hangs on Lizzie, not on Emma. By the way, there's a man on the sidewalk across the street in this scene who tips his hat to two ladies who walk by. And this annoys me because he is the only man in the entire episode. For all intents and purposes, this is an all-woman show. They encompass the entire plot, all of the characterization, all of the dialogue. So it would have been nice not to delude it with that one unnecessary man in the background. Still, as it is, it's pretty impressive. And just like the sympathetic African-American convict in Breakdown, I suspect it's an unusual thing for 1950s TV. So, Nell watches Emma out the window, or more specifically, Nell watches Lizzie looking at Emma out the window, and she figures it out.
8: Emma?
9: Was it Emma, Miss Lizzie? Stop talking nonsense. Wouldn't that
8: be something? Why, that would be the greatest sensation since the gold strike. (laughs) Emma Borden.
9: All right. I'll make a statement. I killed them both with the ax. All right, if you say so. But why did you kill them? Because I don't like cold mutton soup. I bet Emma doesn't either. Oh, what a scoop. <laughs> it isn't a scoop if you can't print it. And I'll sue you if you do. All right, go ahead. I'll prove what I write with this. Shall we?
0: Nell reaches for the axe, but Lizzie gets it first. And wild-eyed, she raises it up against Nell. And just like that, in the face of Lizzie Borden with an axe, Nell forgets all thoughts of Emma being the actual murderer. The legend takes over, and she flees.
8: All right, Miss Lizzie, I, I never meant to take it anyway. Now I know I am a left. Goodbye, Miss Lizzie Gordon.
0: Now, as mentioned, that line is the title of both the stage play and the radio play, and as such, it symbolizes the ultimate solitude and ostracism from society that Lizzie has to face in her sacrifice. Here, it's not the title, but it is the last line of the episode. And it and that door slam condemn her to the same fate. All that's left is for the music to come up and for Lizzie to look at the axe with distaste and throw it down on the table. Then realizing what she's condemned herself to, She slowly makes her way to the parlor. The theremin rises again, as if to say that Lizzie has now taken on Emma's madness. And we get a shot from inside the parlor with the cat sitting on the couch, as Lizzie opens the doors and enters behind. Now, there are three different endings to these three different versions. Here are the stage directions that end the play. Lizzie is left by the table with the axe in her hand. She lifts it, looks at it with loathing, and is about to set it down when from outside comes the rattle of palings and the same childish voice is heard chanting. Lizzie's grip on the axe tightens in anger as she listens, and she draws the axe elbow high. When the quatrain is finished, she lets the axe strike into the wood in a gesture of hopelessness, letting it fall without force into the wood of the table. She works it loose and again lets it fall. Suddenly, she brings the axe around in a full circle and crashes it savagely into the table as the curtain falls. Now, that may be a savage assault to end the play. But remember Wood doesn't bleed, Lizzie. The radio show ends this way.
2: No wonder Miss Hemmer isn't coming back. Goodbye, Miss Lizzie. <coughs>
0: So, why did Lillian make the change here from her stage play to the radio play? Possibly only because it's an ending that's audio friendly. And then there's Robert C. Dennis's ending to our episode. Here, Lizzie sits on the couch, takes the cat in one hand, and almost mechanically pets it. Remember, her previous cat was murdered by Emma. She stares straight ahead as the camera pulls back into a distant shot, showing Lizzie looking small and lost within her own house. And I actually like this ending, the best of the three. Now, up till now, I've been rather coy about who is the older sister. And although Robert C. Dennis changed the title to the older sister, he never says in the episode who the older sister is. Now, you probably have figured it out for yourself, but the older sister is Emma. In fact, Emma was nine years older than Lizzie. Now, being nine years older, she has a better recollection of what things were like when her real mother was still alive. Remember, Lizzie was three when her mother died, which means Emma was 12. There's no indication of that anywhere in the Hitchcock episode, but here is a significant line from the radio play.
7: Oh, you don't remember our mother as I do. You couldn't have hated Mrs. Borden
0: as I did. But we don't need those lines in this episode. Just naming it the older sister is enough. And if we think about it, we can see the love and respect that a younger sister gives to an older sister and the protection she gives when that sister is so very fragile and then ultimately clearly mad. So now let's look at the four women that we meet in this house. Joan Loring, not to be confused with Jean Loring, the girlfriend of the superhero, the Adam, who later ends up becoming a villain and murders the elongated man's wife, Sue Dibney, which sounds like an Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode in itself. So not Jean Loring, but Joan Loring was born Mary Magdalene Ellis, or perhaps Mary Magdalene Ellis, or perhaps Madeline Ellis, or perhaps Anne Ellis in Hong Kong. And she came to the United States in the late 30s with her family, because war was brewing in the Far East, and in Europe, for that matter. She began as a child actress on radio, where for a short time, under the name Delly Ellis, she played the lead in the radio show A Date with Judy.
3: The critic says you're a little crooked again, Judy. Oh, just a very little. Well, I want this to be perfect. Well, we'll do our level best to please you.
4: I just love to dabble around in pace.
3: Mister, whatever got you started on the career of a gas man?
4: I don't know. I went out one day looking for a job and when I came home that night, I was a gas man. And that's what I've been doing ever since.
3: Well, I'm going to get off the barrel. I want to stand back and see what this looks like. Hold out your hand, mister, while I jump.
4: It's a pleasure. Mm.
3: Well, it doesn't look so bad, except for one thing. That big lump down at the bottom. You're yeah, darn right, I'm the lump. <laughs> <laughs> well, jeepers, how did you get under the paper?
0: And here she is in the August 22, 1946 episode of Suspense, The Great Horrell, playing another madwoman.
2: Now the incredible, the terrifying fact stares me in the face, but Martin Horrell still reads my thoughts separated by thousands of miles, he still has the power when he wishes to invade the innermost recesses of my mind as easily as he would walk into a drawing room. I know because I felt his presence there. And so I shut off my thoughts, emptied my mind as I have always done to guard my slightest secret. But what am I to do now? I must think, I must plan very carefully. I dare not tell Paul if I possibly can avoid it. An even more horrifying thought. If Martin
0: Horrell's mind exerts such power over me as this, how much further can he go? How much
2: further can he go?
0: Now, Joan's film career began in 1944, when at age 18 she appeared in Song of Russia. Her second film was The Bridge of San Luis Rey, but it was her third film that brought her the most acclaim, The Corn is Green, in which she was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress.
3: Listen to the night, Morgan. Isn't it beautiful? You like that singing, don't you? You know, it's funny, but we've never been by ourselves
9: before.
3: Didn't know I knew Welsh before, did you? You like that song, don't you? That's why I learned it.
0: Now, IMDB says, inexplicably, her film career went into a rapid decline by the end of the decade. As a result, she sought work elsewhere, and maintained with stage, radio, and small screen endeavors into the next decade. On Broadway, she made her debut in the prime role of budding college student Marie, who sets off the explosive dramatic action in Comeback Little Sheba. She was also in The Autumn Garden, Dead Pigeon, and A Clearing in the Woods. In 1956, she married noted endocrinologist Dr. Martin Sonnenberg, and her career sort of tapered off after that. Again, according to IMDb, her lifelong passion has been bread baking, about which she has written articles for such magazines as Vogue. She once even raised a batch of bread while traveling at a moderate rate of speed in a house trailer. IMDb also notes that in spite of the fact that she was once nominated for an Academy Award, she was not included in the Oscar memoriam segment the year following her death, which was 2014, when she died at the age of 88. This is her only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Carmen Matthews, on the other hand, is in six episodes altogether. We'll see her next in Kill with Kindness, episode four of season two. She began her career with the Stratford-on-Avon Shakespeare Company, in which she played Ophelia in Hamlet, among other roles. She had a long career in both films and television, mostly in character roles. Her films include A Rage to Live, Rabbit Run, Sounder, Top of the Hill, and Butterfield Eight.
9: Emily? Mother, you should be in bed. And you should not be in bed, at least alone. Do you know what we've never had in the family as long as the history of it's been recorded? Privacy. There's not one single solitary divorce It's my opinion after 150 years that we've earned the privilege of a divorce with a clear conscience. Tomorrow I want you to call Mr. Robinson and instruct him to draw up the necessary papers and to have them served forthwith on that worthless absentee husband of yours.
0: On television, she played Susan B. Anthony in the You Are There episode, The Trial of Susan B. Anthony, and Queen Elizabeth I in the episode The Execution of Mary, Queen of Scots. She's in the suspense episode Summer Night and the suspicion episode The Velvet Vault. She was in Ben Casey, Doctor Kildare, The FBI, The Fugitive, Alias Smith and Jones, Ellery Queen, Kate and Alley, The Tales from the Dark Side episode In the Cards, and the Twilight Zone episode Static, where she gets this great monologue.
9: Right now, Ed Lindsay, you're you're just about the meanest, sourest, most cantankerous old man on the face of the earth. Thanks. And I'm not much better. We've been living like two hermits under the same roof for the last 20 years. Staring at each other every morning, day in, day out. 20 long years, wondering what went wrong.
0: I don't know what you're talking oh, about. Oh, yes, you, you do. Cute. You know
9: exactly what I'm talking about, but you won't admit it. We were going to be married. Oh, no,
0: for heaven's sake. Don't get your
9: back up. I'm not trying to change anything. I'm just talking. We met in this boarding house in 1940. And it was here that you proposed. I wanted to set the date. But your mother was ill, you remember, and so... You decided to wait, and that's just what we did. We, we waited and waited until, by the time your mother died, it was too late.
0: But Benny, I'm not gonna going to sit here. Don't interrupt me.
9: I, I've got to get this thing said. Oh, I know you don't care anything about me now. I'm just a silly woman who watches television, dyes her hair, grows old. You don't even like me anymore, and I don't blame you. You're a bachelor, set in your ways. You can't change what you are, and neither can I. We had our chance and missed it, Ed. But I'll tell you one thing that's true, and I know it's true. You did love me as much as a man ever loved a woman, didn't you?
4: Yes, Vinnie. That's true, I did, yes. In
0: 1978, Carmen played what IMDb calls one of her more memorable televised performances, as Colonel Lillian Rayborn on the TV series M.A.S.H., where she romances Colonel Potter.
4: Lil, is what's happening what I think is happening? I think so. That's what I thought. Well, Lil, I, uh... I'm not, uh... That is to say... I don't... No. Hmm? Not while there's a girl at home with my picture on her piano.
9: Sherm, I just want you to know that, uh... Well, I don't fall into bed with every man
4: I meet. I know that.
9: Where did I get my signals crossed?
4: You didn't. I just... Gave you the wrong impression. I was so damn tickled having someone my own age to talk to. That's all. I'm
9: sorry. So am I. Could have
4: been something... ...quite special. It still is.
0: Again, according to IMDB, in 1975, she set up and ran a residential summer camp for disadvantaged children on her 100-acre farm in Redding, Connecticut. And toward the end of her life, she made a perpetual donation of her 100-acre New Pond Farm to the Redding Land Trust to ensure that it would retain its woods, fields, pond, and marsh. And Carmen Matthews died in 1995 at the age of 81. This is the only episode for Polly Rolls, who plays Nell Cuts. She was born Mary Elizabeth Rolls, and she was in movies from 1936 to 1982 and on TV from 1951 to 1982, as well as being on Broadway from 1937 to 1983, where she debuted as Calpurnia in the Orson Welles production of Julius Caesar. She is, unfortunately, best known or best remembered as Inspector 12 on a series of television commercials for Hanes Underwear. Here she is,
4: the famous Inspector 12. She makes sure that Hanes men's and boys' t-shirts and briefs are as good as we say they are. Inspector 12. She pokes, she stretches, and that's just the beginning. Once again, Hanes t-shirts and briefs pass the lasting quality test. They don't say
8: Hanes. Until I say, they say, Hanes. Buy two
5: three-packs and get a $3 refund on all Hanes underwear.
0: Polly Rolls died in 2001 at the age of 87. And that brings us to Pat Hitchcock. This is her second episode of 10. Her first was Into Thin Air, episode 5. And her next is The Belfry, episode 33. Now, Pat had roles in three of her father's films as well. The second and the third are particularly well-known and acclaimed, Strangers on a Train and Psycho. But I'd like to talk just for a little bit about her first film, which I think is vastly underrated, Stage Fright, in which her father saddled her with the unflattering name of Chubby Bannister. Here's Pat from Hitchcock and Stage Fright, a special feature on the Stage Fright DVD.
9: Well, I had uh, started being in school plays when I was uh, eight, and that was in England. And then when we came over to this country, uh, I still, you know, knew that that's what I wanted to do. And then I went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art when I graduated from high school. And it was a top dramatic school in England. You learned from the basics. And he would never have cast me in anything unless I was right for the part. Stage fright was just uh, a little bit part because we, he was shooting at the Royal Academy. And uh, since I was a student there, my friends and I were I able to be in the garden
1: party sequence.
3: If we wanted to misbehave ourselves, we couldn't find a minute to do it in No.
1: Yes, so I understand. Eve tells me she kept hard at it all day most of the evening.
3: But Eve hasn't been near for days.
9: And he had me do danger driving for Jane Wyman because he didn't want to risk her, and he knew I'd love to do that.
0: It all sounds very harmless and coincidental, and maybe it is. But here's Theodore Price from his book, Hitchcock and Homosexuality. In 1950, Pat is about 21, when it is pretty certain that acting will be the career she will be taking up. Hitch sends her to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. Here, just as on the later occasion when he surprised Tippi Hedren with the gift of a flying seagull pin, presenting her as though with a lover's gift, the role of Melanie in the birds, he surprises Pat with the offer to send her to the famous drama school in London. Like a dutiful and cautious dad, he arranges for her to live with his two spinster aunts. But she soon moves out to a flat of her own with other students, presumably and hopefully female. About mid-1951, when Pat is 23, while traveling to Europe by ship with her parents, she meets and falls immediately in love with a young Massachusetts businessman, Joseph O'Connell Jr. In September of the same year, they get engaged, and the following January, they get married. Once again, Hitch involves himself psychologically. He gives her a large wedding, the details of which he himself directs. Stage Fright, Strangers on a Train, and I Confess were made one right after the other, and the three films may well be termed a Hitch-Pat father-daughter trilogy. Stage Fright is about a young actress studying at the Royal Academy. Strangers on a Train, of course, has Pat in a key role as the bespectacled virgin double of the bespectacled faithless whore wife of the film. And I Confess is about a Roman Catholic father whom the blonde heroine of the film has been in love with, who seemingly deserts him for her husband, but soon tells the father that she has loved him all the while. Indeed, Hitch, shortly before deciding an I Confess, takes it upon himself to arrange in every detail Pat's wedding ceremony, which is held in the great Roman Catholic Cathedral of St. Patrick's in New York City. For it is at about this time, 1950 to 1951, when Hitch starts making this trilogy, That Hitchcock starts to lose Pat. It is true that Pat meets her future husband only after Strangers on a Train has been completed, but by this time she has been living away from home, must in all likelihood have been dating regularly, and is ready for a lover. And that lover would not be her dad. Stage fright can be characterized as all about Pat. The heroine of the story, Jane Wyman, is a student at the Royal Academy where Pat was a student in real life at the time the picture was being made. There is, as has often been noticed, a remarkable resemblance between the way Jane Wyman looks in the film and Pat. And Pat, who appears briefly in the film, was at times used as Jane's double on the set. Price then refers to Francois Truffaut's comment in the Hitchcock-Truffaut interviews, referring to the casting of Jane Wyman.
4: I, think, I thought Mr. Hitchcock had perhaps chosen her for reasons Patricia of resemblance with Hitchcock. Patricia Hitchcock. I had a
8: feeling that he was doing a picture on his daughter, as a matter of fact.
4: Not exactly.
8: Not, exactly. Not exactly.
0: Now, you can take all that or leave all that, but the truth is the film is very much about the theater and the donning of roles. And the whole film itself is a theater piece beginning with a curtain raising. Here's Peter Bogdanovich and Richard Franklin, two directors in the Hitchcock and Stage Fright special feature.
5: Uh, You could say that Hitchcock's films are often about artifice, and in this picture it's summed up perhaps by the opening shot when the curtain goes up and goes up on London so that London becomes the setting, this particular artificial story that he is going to tell us.
0: I love the opening because it sets up the theatricality of the piece. It immediately tells you this is not real, this is a piece of theatre. Here's how Donald Spoto puts it in The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock. When the curtain is fully risen, the viewer is in the action of the story. At once, then, the distinctions between theatrical life and street life, and in what follows between art and life itself, begin to blur. As the story unfolds, everyone assumes false identities, everyone plays a role. Appearances slip and slide, and nothing is certain in a world marked by costumes and matinees and benefit garden parties and the lies of false friends. Now, I don't want to say too much about the plot itself, because I have this feeling that most people have not seen this film, and I don't want to ruin it for them. You really should see it. But it begins with Jane Wyman in a car driving Richard Todd. He is very distraught because the police are after him, and he tells her a story of a murder in Flashback.
1: It's Charlotte Inwood. Oh, She's in a jam.
0: But that doesn't surprise
1: me. No, this is serious, Eve. It's deadly serious. She was all over the place. I had to help her. Anybody would have done. I was in my kitchen. It was about (coughs) 5 o'clock. The doorbell rang, and I went downstairs to see who it was.
3: Johnny, you love me. Say that you love me. You do love me, don't you? I think he's dead. I'm sure he's dead. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Who's dead? My
9: husband. We had a terrible quarrel. about you? Oh, he was vile. You know the sort of things he can say. He started to hit me.
3: I grabbed something. I was out of my mind with fear. Oh, what am I to do?
0: Charlotte Inwood is played by Marlena Dietrich at her most bewitching. And you can see why Johnny, Richard Todd, is fascinated by her. The problem is Eve, Jane Wyman, is in love with Johnny. There's also a great moment in that early scene where Johnny comes down the stairs to open the door. And what the camera shows us is not Marlena Dietrich's face, but Marlena Dietrich from the waist down. And we can see on the bottom part of her dress this big blood stain. Now, Marlena Dietrich's character is the lead in a musical review, and she needs to get to the theater, but she can't go with this bloodstained dress. So, as the flashback continues, Johnny agrees to sneak into her home and get a dress for her to wear. And while he's there, he's seen, of course, and he ends up on the run. Now, this looks like it's going to be the standard Hitchcock, the wrong man accused, and he's on the run film. We've seen it plenty of times before in films like The 39 Steps. We'll see it again in films like North by Northwest. But the star of this film is not Richard Todd. It's Jane Wyman. And in her role as the protector of Johnny, Eve takes on a role in disguise, as Marlena Dietrich's new maid. Along the way, she encounters a detective who is investigating the murder of Marlena Dietrich's husband. He's played by Michael Wilding, and they start to fall in love. So our allegiances are confused. There's a wonderful scene where Eve is in Johnny's arms, and she looks over at the piano. Michael Wilding's character, Detective Smith, plays the piano, and the sound of a piano in her mind drowns out what Johnny is saying.
1: If I hadn't heard her maid's scared voice outside the dressing room door, they'd have got me. Oh, darling, I know I should never have trusted her. Oh, darling, you've been wonderful to me. I don't deserve it, but I need you. I need you more than ever. Tonight, when I found what Charlotte was, all of a sudden, I thought my brain would burst. After all that I'd done for her, everything that I did for her was because I loved her and she loved me.
0: There are other nice moments using sound or using the camera in this film that really stand out. One in particular is sort of a tour de force camera move where Johnny goes to Charlotte's house. He walks up to the door, opens the door. The camera follows him. Johnny appears to close the door. His hand comes out. We don't see the door anymore. And he makes a movement and you get the sound effect of the door closing. But in reality, that part of the set is gone as it's been moved out of the way so the camera can move in and continue to follow Johnny up the steps to the room where Charlotte's husband lies dead. Now, unfortunately, stage fright was not well received. There was a major complaint that people had about the film, which I don't want to mention. I don't see any problem with it myself. I don't really understand what the big complaint is. But it threw people off and then things snowballed from there. The critics that have written about it, the biographers of Hitchcock, for the most part, also don't treat it well. Peter Aykroyd in Alfred Hitchcock says, Stage fright does have the air of a wasted opportunity. It has no natural or even pace. As well as being set in the world of London theater, under Hitchcock's guidance, it becomes theatrical both in tone and execution. The characters wear various disguises and adopt various roles. Many of the scenes are melodramatic and intent, The landscape of London resembles a set, and nothing is truly what it seems. Robert A. Harris and Michael S. Lasky in the films of Alfred Hitchcock are particularly harsh. They say, in part, there is really just one suspenseful scene in the entire movie, and it comes at the very end. Until then, no one is ever in any real danger, and that is the main reason the viewer does not care about the people. This is a complaint I've seen in several places, and I just don't agree with it. Suspense doesn't have to be developed from life-threatening situations. There is plenty of suspense here because Eve is working undercover. But this is a complaint echoed by Francois Truffaut as well. And Hitchcock gives into it. He doesn't really stick up for these films of which Truffaut is critical. And he tends to cast blame elsewhere. For instance, he says this about Jane Wyman
4: we ran into great difficulties with Jane she is a very moody person and in her disguise as a Maid or a
9: dresser, she
4: should have looked not very
5: attractive
4: after all. She was copying the original a, maid,
5: of of she copied
4: every time she went to the rushes, and saw herself with Dietrich,
8: she cried.
4: Black. <laughs> and she couldn't bear the sight pas tolérer, of and seeing her face in character and Dietrich looking character. beautiful.
9: Et Dietrich belle. Ah, oui, oui.
4: And she kept improving her own face.
9: And spoiled
0: the whole character.
9: Et elle a raté toute
3: la
0: but Donald Spoto in Spellbound by Beauty says... This was not quite the case, but the eventual commercial failure of the film forced Hitchcock to offer an explanation of what had gone wrong, and as usual, he preferred an actor to take the blame. It was certainly true that Jane resented the attention lavished on Dietrich, but when she, quote, kept improving her appearance every day, end quote, she did so with the collaboration of the makeup and wardrobe crew who were, of course, following instructions. Hitchcock certainly seemed to lavish more attention on Marlena Dietrich than he did Jane Wyman, though in his book Hitch, John Russell Taylor quotes Marlena Dietrich as saying, He frightened the daylights out of me. He knew exactly what he wanted, a fact that I adore, but I was never quite sure if I did right. Just a couple more things about stage fright. First of all, Michael Wilding ended up having an affair with Marlena Dietrich, during the shooting of the film. In Spellbound by Beauty, Donald Spoto quotes Michael Wilding as saying, We became inseparable. In fact, she would not move a step without me. She insisted that I accompany her everywhere, and she took as much interest in my appearance as she did in her own. But close as we became, there was an unfathomable quality about Marlena, a part of her that remained aloof. Sadly, our relationship came to an abrupt end. And Spoto adds, parenthetically, When she learned of his marriage to Elizabeth Taylor in 1952, Dietrich was shocked. And let's finish up our look at stage fright with this quote from Richard Franklin, again from the Hitchcock and Stage Fright special feature. Stage fright is underrated
1: and thought of as quite lightweight for two reasons. Probably because Hitchcock talked about it in the negative in later years, Um, but also because Strangers on a Train came next and was
0: a huge success at every level. Uh, I think stage fright was sort of the end of the old Hitchcock, but it does
1: contain a lot more complexity in a way that a lot of people don't remember.
0: Now here's Hitch to wrap things up. Did she seem a trifle overwrought
4: to you? She did to me. But you know, I react in precisely the same manner whenever I hear a child singing Davy Crockett being more civilized than Lizzie. I don't go about hitting tables. I hit the child instead, not with the axe, of course, but in a nice way.
0: There's a couple of things worth mentioning there. And yes, we could talk about how the humor of hitting a child is no longer funny. But what I really want to talk about is the reference to a child singing Davy Crockett, which was very timely but clearly refers to a child singing the Lizzie Borden song at the end of the episode, which does not take place. Hitch also mentions...
4: Being more civilized than Lizzie. I don't go about hitting
0: tables. Which, you may recall, was the ending of the stage play, where Lizzie is clearly a trifle overwrought. So it certainly appears that at some point in time, the script for the television episode ended the way the stage play does, with the child singing Lizzie Borden took an axe, and with Lizzie then hitting the table with the axe instead of the ending we have now. And either they didn't tell James Allardyce or they recorded it before they changed the ending. Now the other thing I want to mention is, again, my DVD is playing tricks on me and does not include the entire outro. So here is the rest of what Hitch says before the commercial. Not with the axe, of course, but in a nice way. Now, I am certain there are some of you who prefer that we have a happy ending on our program. For your benefit, we are going to present one now, after which I'll be back. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, Butterfield 8, The Twilight Zone, Season 2, Stage Fright, including the special feature Hitchcock and Stage Fright, Spellbound by Beauty by Donald Spoto, The Dark Side of Genius by Donald Spoto, and Alfred Hitchcock by Peter Aykroyd, are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The suspense episode, Goodbye Miss Lizzie Borden, the suspense episode, The Great Horrell, the radio program, Unsolved Mysteries, the Fall River Legend Ballet, the Jack Beeson opera, Lizzie Borden, The Legend of Lizzie Borden, starring Elizabeth Montgomery, the trailer for Lizzie Borden Took an Axe, the interview with Christina Rishi, where she talks about the Lizzie Borden Chronicles, the trailer for Lizzie, Five Facts about Lizzie Borden, A Date with Judy, the film clip from The Corn is Green, the Haynes Inspector 12 commercial, and the Hitchcock-Truffaut interviews are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at scherzmaa at aadl.org That's s-j- O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at A-A-D-L dot O-R-G. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode 18, Shopping for Death, starring Joe Van Fleet. Now, since my DVD outro is truncated, I'm going to begin it for Hitch, and he'll finish it up taken us away. That was more like it.
4: It's so much better to end the program on a pleasant note, don't you think? Good night.